0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, May 11th, 2020. And I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And this week, we talked to a very special author who wrote a very special book. But before we dive into that, I want to thank those of you who continue to make Talk Nerdy possible each and every week. Now, remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And I really stitched together my business model with ad sales, merchandise sales, but most of all, support from listeners just like you through Patreon. So if you're interested in learning more or you want to pledge your support, all you've got to do is go to patreon.com slash Talk Nerdy. This week's top patrons include Avril Colbida, Michael Gaucher, Christopher Pitts, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Brian Holden, Daniel Lang, and of course, David J.E. Smith. Thank you all so, so very much for your support. And remember, if you're not in a financial position to support the show, but you still want to show how much you love Talk Nerdy, why don't you rate and review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Podcast on Spotify, on Stitcher. Talk about it on social media. Bring more eyeballs, or I should say, earholes to the show. Um, I'd greatly appreciate it. And it really does help a lot. All right. So let's talk about this week's episode. I have the opportunity to talk to the author of the new book, Nobody's Child A Tragedy, a Trial, and a History of the Insanity Defense, written by Dr. Susan Vinickor. Now, Susan is a um, previous defender in the Office of Legal Aid in Detroit. And then she went back to school to study clinical psychology. And she worked as a forensic psychologist for many years. And she has a wealth of information and a lot of personal experience advocating for young children in the courts. Um, She also did a lot of research to understand the insanity defense at its core and the real mismatch between the insanity defense in the court system and what we know within clinical psychology and psychiatry as mental illness. Um, It's a beautiful book. It's an important book. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I had just a wonderful time speaking with her. So without any further ado, you guys, here she is, Dr. Susan Vinicor. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Do you go by Susan or Sue? Uh, Either one, actually. It doesn't matter. Nice. I like that. I wish my name could be shortened. (laughs) I've never had a name that you could nickname, like Kara, like Care. No, that doesn't really work. little strange. So I have to admit that I'm very, very excited to talk to you about your book today. And yes, it's a somber topic, but it's very rare for me that a book comes across my desk that is so beautifully aligned with my own professional interests. I know that people... Listening to the show, know that I'm a science communicator and that I cover all types of science stories, both on Talk Nerdy and my other podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And I think at this point, most people know that I'm also working on my PhD in clinical psychology. My focus is social justice and diversity, and I've been reading a lot lately. Like right now, I'm in the middle of. Um, of the new Jim Crow. And I feel like, you know, learning about race relations in the United States in a really deep way and how they relate to the, so, um, I'm sorry, the criminal justice system and, and how all that folds into the history of mental health. It's just fascinating to me. And your book encapsulates so many of those concepts in such a beautiful way. So I'm just, I'm thrilled to be able to chat with you today.
1: Well, it's great to be uh, talking to somebody who's got an interest in the field. Absolutely. Such a rich and deep subject matter, you know. And I'm an old legal aid attorney from from way back before I was an at- a psychologist.
0: Well, and that interests me so much. I mean, when I first realized that this story is not just, you know, a history of science or a history of the legal system story, um, but a very personal story about your experience with the insanity defense, or at least your experience with mental health and criminal justice. And then I realized that not only were you a prosecutor, but also a forensic psychologist and how those things interplay. I mean, I'd love to get a little bit about your history, maybe, before we get into what you write about in the book. What came first, psychology or law?
1: Well, what came first was law. And and originally out of law school, I was a legal aid defense attorney working with kids uh, where there were allegations of abuse, but also where there were involuntary psychiatric commitments and delinquency proceedings. So I worked as a law guardian with what we would think of as kids who were uh, in poverty, underserved populations, mostly inner city populations. And then I became an assistant prosecutor, but with a very specific mandate, which was to take a look at or to investigate how cases of uh, suspected child abuse were being handled in our county. A six-month-old child had just been killed by her parents, and she had previously been identified as abused and taken out of the home briefly and then put back in, and she was killed. So the district attorney in Rochester, New York, where I was living, was very worried about whether all the people who have some kind of a legal mandate to report abuse were in fact doing their jobs. And so I did a big grand jury investigation that took about seven or eight months into all of the different characters who are supposed to play a role in reporting and identifying abuse and whether any of them had committed indictable offenses. So I practiced law for about eight years and then... uh, I had three children in 15 months and was out of the work market for a while. And by that time, I had kind of soured on um, law as a solution to pathology and family problems. You know, you can you can have a long, complicated trial and lots of evidence, and then you can order people to change their behavior, but fact of the matter is, if they were able to change their behavior, they wouldn't have done it that way in the first place, mostly and just ordering them to change doesn't really bring about much change. So I was doing sex crimes, domestic violence and child abuse and I decided I would rather work from a different angle. So I went back and got a doctorate in psychology.
0: Wow. What I mean, what an interesting journey and one that I think really, it speaks to me so much personally. First, um, first thing that I think of when you're telling me about um, the big case that you did on the prosecution side, or at least the, the research that you were doing is the famous case that maybe more people are aware of now of Gabriel Fernandez from 2013, because that um, aired, there's a Netflix documentary made about it that came out somewhat recently. And such a similar And very sad story of a young boy who had a long history of abuse and, you know, ultimately um, multiple people sort of he fell through the cracks uh, or through the fingers of multiple people who probably should have reported or even when they did report, it didn't go up the chain. Um, And so it's sad to hear that recapitulating that, you know, what year was it when you were doing that um, that case or that investigation?
1: Uh, That was in about 1979 or 1980. And two years ago in the same county where I did that work, we had an almost identical case. So, you know, uh, uh, at the time I did it, there were grand jury recommendations and some of them were followed for a few years, but mostly we're in the same situation we were in 20 years ago in terms of protecting children adequately.
0: Right. And so I think another reason that this really hits home for me is that my last practicum, which is um, for anybody listening who doesn't know that word, it's um, kind of one of the first times when you're in clinical training where you go and you see clients or patients or, um, you know, people served, however you, however you word it in your, in your work. But I, you know, do therapy Um you know, I have to get a certain number of hours before I do my pre-doctoral internship and then you do a postdoctoral internship and blah, blah, blah. You do a lot of hours. So early on, you do these supervised hours that they call practicum. It's kind of your first foray into therapy. And my first practicum, which I just finished, I did 760 hours over the course of about a year and a half, was in a basically a group home for adolescent girls. And so these are the same kids in many ways, maybe a little older that you were working with. Like these are kids who were... um removed from the home from child protective services and you know struggled with a lot of these very similar things poverty um, drug addiction you know their parents struggled with poverty drug addiction abuse neglect um, or some sometimes suicide or you know the parents died and that's why they they came into our care but more often usually because um, it, it was deemed an unsafe household for these kids. But then we, we really did struggle to see sometimes, would they have been better off with their parents? Are they better off in our care? You know, these are kids who oftentimes were in multiple foster homes or had been adopted and then re- released again. So because by the time they were with us, they were adolescents. So these CSEC issues, commercial sexual exploitation of children, a lot of, um, you know, new drug addictions and drug abuse that was starting to um, to become a problem in their own personal lives. Well, and these were kids who'd been exposed to multiple trauma, too. Oh, absolutely. That's everything we worked on was Pete. I mean, every kid who came in our door, it was so interesting to see that their historical diagnoses were almost always um, depression, anxiety, ADHD. And I was like, how is every girl, like, I was almost always re-diagnosing with PTSD or some trauma-informed um, diagnosis and they weren't coming in with them. And it was amazing to me to see that somehow nobody, and I, I would get girls sometimes who had been in the system for 15 years and who had only ever seen one therapist or, you know, and it's like, wow, how, how is this happening? And that's in a County very close to Los Angeles.
1: I was going to say often the practitioners that they, that these kids, uh, have a chance to see are sort of, Junior practitioners, in a way, they're people with a lower level of training or skill uh, because the jobs pay so terribly poorly <clears throat> that, for the most part, they're not seeing doctoral level or psychiatrists.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I was a trainee at the doctoral level, of course, but you're right. Most of the people in my circle, like whether it's the people I worked with in the facility where I worked or when we do child family team meetings, you know, kind of the bigger circle of people, they were mostly master's level practitioners, social workers. Um, uh, MFTs, you know, different, um, practitioners who are amazing at their job, but you're right, not, um, their kind of path there was maybe a little bit shorter and they had lots of times been entrenched in the system for a long time. And so I think you end up getting really burned out when this is your day to day, you're seeing the worst of the worst, um, circumstances every single day. And it becomes this weird new normal for you. Whereas for most people in sort of, larger society, don't even think about the fact that these kids or these problems exist because they're sort of hidden from view.
1: Right. I think that's absolutely true. When we were doing the grand jury investigation, I brought in as witnesses some people from uh, a suburban nursery school and a school. And they said to me, well, we don't ever have to report abuse because there isn't any abuse in our community. And of course there is, (laughs) (laughs) So you know, it doesn't matter if you're rich, suburban, you know, middle-class, whatever, there still is plenty of abuse, but it tends to go under the radar because richer parents are more insulated from the, in terms of protecting their privacy and keeping people from knowing what's going on behind the nice white picket fences and, you know, Whereas kids who—that's oh, a good point. Yeah, kids who are in poverty, parents who are resource poor, are often involved with social services at various levels, and it's a little more likely that their kids will be noticed if they're abused. But it has to be such a high level of abuse, <clears throat> and then when you identify it, the families are so resource poor that it's very, very difficult to solve the problem.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, Oh, you just need to go to family therapy or, Oh, let's, you know, get you in treatment or, and then we can work on it. And I do tend to see that, that there is a massive inequity with the girls that I was treating um, in terms of reunification. It definitely is true that the, the girls of color, um, especially um, black and uh, Latin X girls that I was seeing are, um, tended to have bigger problems with reunification with their family because their families didn't have the resources to take the classes, to do all of the steps. They often didn't see them as often, even if they had visitation because they didn't have transportation. And so just all of the social support that you think of, whereas the white girls that I saw, not not all the time, because obviously I saw a lot of poor white girls as well, uh, resource poor white girls, but um, by and large, they Tended to have more social support, more aunts and uncles that were available.
1: Right, and somewhere there was a more coherent family structure.
0: And, right. And also and more, more resources. More resources, more education, which I think is another big part of it. Like you were saying, they're more insulated, but also maybe a little more educated about how to, sadly, hide the abuse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You
1: know? I'm, ugh, well,
0: such a hard thing to say.
1: So, what we're talking about, the, these kids kids that we're talking about with this background of all kinds of trauma and and poverty on multiple levels. Dorothy Dunn, the woman that the book Nobody's Child is about, is one of those kids grown up. So that's that's very much her background. Right. And so she comes to parenting from that background.
0: Right, right. And that's really, so your book, I mean, just to kind of step back and, and give a bigger structure, your book is about the insanity defense and about kind of the, the, I guess, relationship between our legal system as it stands and as it has stood for a very long time and mental health issues in American society. But you really tell that story through a case that you personally were involved in, and that's the Dorothy Dunn case. When, when was that?
1: Um, it was about 17 years ago uh, that Department of Social Services, Child Protective Services, brought her little grandson, Ramey, who was about three, to stay with her because his mother, who was Dorothy's daughter, was schizophrenic and drug addicted and mentally retarded, and she was living out on the streets with this little boy. And uh, so they they took him to his grandmother's house and left him there and did not come back to see how he was doing. So he was with her for about six months that really nobody knows exactly what was going on. But um, he ended up getting, one way or another, a severe head injury that killed him. And that brought the police to Dorothy's house. <clears throat> but in the meantime, Pediatricians hadn't helped this little boy. Um, he wasn't in school yet, but he had visibility from uh, police who hadn't reported it, you know, pediatrician who hadn't reported it, tried to report it, and it wasn't serious enough for the Child Protective Services to accept the report. So there were multiple system failures, systems that failed Dorothy, failed her daughter, and failed Ramy, until he ended up dead on her kitchen floor.
0: And so at this time, you were no longer a lawyer, but you were actually called on the case as a forensic psychologist, like as an expert?
1: Right. The public defender realized that there might be something um, awry with Dorothy in terms of her mental status, because when the public defender initially was assigned the case and went to interview her, first of all, she really wasn't coherent. She couldn't understand the public defender couldn't really understand the narrative that Dorothy was offering it was uh it was so disorganized and strange but the other thing is it became clear that Dorothy had slept with this little boy's corpse for 3 days after he died and she had moved him off and on the heating grate in the house to kind of simulate life so he wouldn't seem too cold and when she finally called the EMS uh 911 and they came her her question to them was, he'll be all right, won't he? You can fix him, can't you? So seemed like she was really not functioning in the same reality or the same awareness as an average person. And the public defender decided she needed to get a psychiatric evaluation of Dorothy to see whether she was competent to stand trial. And if she was, to see whether she had been insane at the time that this little boy died.
0: And so one of the distinctions that you make, which I think is such an important distinction, and and I think actually, by and large, is not well understood, is that mental illness has um, a lot of constructs, right? These ideas of like diagnoses, per the book that we all use, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that is um, kind of a consortium of people have worked together over the years. There are multiple iterations to come up with like diagnoses that are just based on symptoms because it's very different than certain medical diagnoses. And then you contrast that with what in the legal system is defined as, quote, insanity, which is actually not a psychiatric
1: or psychological
0: or mental health
1: term at all. Right. Right. Uh, Right. The definition of legal insanity doesn't have any corollary in uh, the science of human brain and behavior. And in fact, the law actually has multiple definitions of something like insanity, depending on if it's a criminal case or another kind of case. So, for example, was a person competent to to make a will or were they incompetent? Uh, Are they competent to manage their own affairs or not? Those are very different than the issue of criminal insanity that would that the law says if you meet the definition, the legal definition of insanity, then you should not be uh, convicted and punished for a crime in the same way that uh, as a person who was in their right mind, rational and intentional and just bad would be punished. So we try to say, well. But unfortunately, the legal definition of insanity has slid all over the place and bears little or no relationship to the psychiatric condition that we see in real life.
0: And so, how do you square that circle? I mean, as a forensic psychologist coming in, you know, is it about doing a full assessment, giving a diagnosis, and leaving it up to the lawyers to figure out what that means? Is it about making recommendations um, to the lawyers about whether or not you think that they, the individual, was competent or is competent to stand
1: trial? I mean, what is your role there? Yeah, well, the first question when you have somebody with a severe mental illness is whether they're competent to stand trial. But competency is different than sanity. So a person is competent as long as they're able to consult with their attorney and assist with their defense reasonably well. So if they can give some sort of coherent accounting of themselves, if they understand that they're being tried, if they understand that they have a right to a defense and that the attorney is supposed to help them with that, they're going to be competent. It's a very low standard. Very few people are found incompetent, <clears throat> but sometimes. So was they Dorothy
0: are. found incompetent?
1: No, because wow. and the reason the reason was because when I did the evaluation of her, I thought she met the legal standard of competency, and you have to have two independent mental health people looking at someone and both coming to the conclusion that they're incompetent in order for the court to really give it serious consideration. So since I was saying, no, I think she's competent, it would have been hard to find two other people who said she was incompetent. So the defense attorney didn't waste time and effort on that. Um, And it's not that I really thought she was competent in a psychiatric sense, but in the legal sense, she met the legal definition of competency. So then we went on to the question of whether at the time of the uh, boy's death, I was going to say at the time of the crime, but we don't really know whether a crime was committed because we don't really know how he got his head injury. But anyway, the question is whether a person knew what they were doing and that it was wrong at the time that they committed the act that they're being charged with. So that was the next question. And and that's... And is that...
0: The difference between sanity and insanity.
1: Right. You're, you're legally insane in this country in most states, although some states have abolished their insanity defense altogether. And the Supreme Court just said, well, that's probably OK to do that. Um, yeah, kind of scary. And that, that movement started with uh, in 1983 when John Hinckley shot Reagan. There was a big change in the law. The insanity defense got narrowed and restricted more. Some states abolished it altogether. But the standard in most states is if a person knew what they were doing and they knew it was wrong, they're sane. No matter whether they're psychotic or delusional or manic, it doesn't matter if they knew what they were doing and they knew it was wrong. The problem is The knew it was wrong part is very confusing. It doesn't mean that you knew that the specific act you were doing was wrong. It means you knew that acts of that kind are generally wrong. So, for example, if I go out and kill a person because I believe that they are a six-headed alien who has taken over a human body, and is about to spread plague on the earth, and the only way I can save the earth is to kill them. Well, if I know that I'm killing a person, and I know that killing people is generally illegal, I'm going to be ruled sane and tried for that, even though I was completely delusional on this particular subject, and I believed what I was doing was morally right. But yeah, even
0: it, though it was clear to anybody that you were having a psychotic right. episode. Right. Yeah,
1: as long as I know that it's legally wrong, even though I believe that it's morally right, I'm going to be found sane and tried. So, when you're a forensic expert in mental health, it's very difficult because you can get people that meet the technical definition of sanity that you know were also operating in a a complete irrational world with a different reality than anybody else and a delusion that to them was absolutely believable and real and that they acted on and they're going to be found sane and they're going to be tried. And, you know, as a psychologist, you kind of feel like, well, what is the insanity defense for then, ethically and morally? Isn't it to excuse people and treat rather than punish people who are suffering from severe mental illness that makes them really incapable of exercising ordinary judgment and reality testing.
0: And at a certain point really where is that line because we know that from a social justice perspective, sadly and unfortunately, jails and prisons tend to warehouse by and large mentally ill individuals and people who would otherwise be homeless. Like we we know that the treatment In some places is is top notch, in other places is really subpar. But that a lot of people in prison require mental health treatment because a lot of people in prison have, yeah, and do not receive it exactly. But I can think of so many examples just as you're telling me about this of of situations in which a person, you know, whether they suffer from schizophrenia or some other um, uh, diagnosis that would um, that would be symptomatic of delusions or hallucinations, whether they are, um, uh, under the influence of uppers, you know, methamphetamine or something, or PCP that might cause that kind of thing, or well, whether they manic severely manic, exactly, or whether they are so low functioning cognitively, like you mentioned that Dorothy Dunn. I mean, she had a, you know, a host of issues, but when you're so low functioning cognitively that your reality testing is poor, I mean, the fact that she thought she could just warm the body up and maybe he would be okay is, is a strong indicator that something's not right.
1: Right, we wouldn't call that sort of normal, average reasoning that a person who's intact right. would would do. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and I I could see that so many of those examples would contribute to somebody maybe making a decision that turns out to be criminal and not being aware of that fact. But later, if they can sit there with a psychologist and and be tested about their what they know to be right and what they know to be wrong, basically a test of their own ethics, um, that they might come out. Average on that test. Ugh. I mean, that really does not bode well, does it?
1: No. And we know that something like 15% of the people who are incarcerated in prisons in the United States have severe mental uh, disorders, you know, severe depression, severe psychotic illnesses, severe bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, they get very little treatment. And basically, when we deinstitutionalized, chronically and long-term mentally ill back in the late 1960s, we essentially criminalized mental illness. So now, instead of putting people in halfway houses or psychiatric facilities involuntarily, we end up arresting them and charging them with crimes and sentencing them. And we, you know, keep them for a while. We don't treat them. And then we let them out and they don't have, they're not in any better uh, ability to function than they were before.
0: I mean, maybe we could speak to that for for another minute or so. I remember when I first learned about this idea of deinstitutionalization, it was um, it was an ethical conundrum. It was an ethical quandary for me. And even more recently, I watched. Um, a beautiful documentary on, I think it was last season, so last year, 2019, of Frontline on PBS uh, called Right to Fail. And it was all about a New York City, I think New York City housing um, law and the idea that there was a class action lawsuit of individuals who were living in housing, um, kind of transitional housing or supportive housing who wanted the right not to live there regardless of their mental status. And it was this kind of push-pull between civil rights right and civil justice like this civil liberties this idea that I can make a decision for myself versus but you're so profoundly um, um, you have such profound dysfunction in certain areas of your life that you know the state wants to say it's it's a better interest for you to get this kind of supportive housing or for you to take your meds or for you to do you know whatever and that that basic question, one has been at the heart of deinstitutionalization, but also there were other factors at play like like um antipsychotic drugs coming on the market and stuff, weren't there?
1: Uh, yeah, there were. I mean, the original push was that the psychiatric facilities were full of people who were being held involuntarily, even though just because they had a mental illness. So the law changed to say you can only commit somebody involuntarily if they're an imminent danger to themselves or to others. And otherwise, they have a right to fail, basically. They They have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And even if they're not living their life the way you think you would want to, you don't have a right to substitute your judgment for theirs and deprive them of freedom. But the deal was, when the deinstitutionalization happened and the civil rights of the chronically mentally ill were more uh, supported. We were supposed to provide a great deal of funding for community-based outpatient mental health centers, but that never happened. So we reduced the number of psychiatric beds and facilities. As inpatients, we turned everybody out into the community, and then we ignored them. We didn't provide treatment. We didn't provide case management support. We didn't provide safe housing. So now, uh, when they get into trouble because of their illness or just because of their the limitations in their problem solving, we tend to arrest them for vagrancy or for littering or for simple assault or shoplifting uh, and sometimes for murder. When Yeah. But Dorothy Dunn is a good example because she doesn't pose a danger to anybody. She had never behaved aggressively or illegally in her life. She'd never posed a danger to anybody. And yet, um, you know, the law, they charged her with second degree murder. And if convicted, she was going to face a very long time in prison.
0: And she was actually kind of in some ways an example of I don't want to say a success because I think that's a stretch, but an individual who is living independently, she was living you know in her own home and according to um, authorities or you know um, the individuals working within the placement organizations was a better option for the child because mom um, mom was homeless, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, well, and that's,
1: homeless and prostituting and using drugs. So it, she was the most unsafe uh, version of homelessness for a young child.
0: And ultimately, I mean, when we talk about that big push towards deinstitutionalization, you know, some scholars can directly point to that to say this is what's responsible for the vast majority of our homeless population. And if you were to survey you know, pick somebody at random who's living on the street or who's living in a tent city or at Skid Row here in L.A. and give them a psychological assessment that by and large, these individuals probably would benefit from inpatient or at least outpatient services.
1: Right. I think there are studies that show that. And especially up in Seattle, they've been running a pilot program for several years with the homeless, and they've had a great deal of success in helping people stabilize their lives and become safer but without intruding on their freedom much. so Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it seems like one of the toughest things here is that sometimes these people might fall through the cracks who would benefit from, you know, um, whether it be weekly um, psychotherapy or just drug intervention support groups, you know, the services that cost money and ultimately the people who are the most resource poor need the most. And that seems to be one of the biggest underlying problems of all of this. I mean, not to editorialize too much, but like our healthcare system is absolutely failing so many people.
1: Right. It's pretty hard to access medical care. You know, I mean, in the case of Dorothy, for example, just getting physically to an emergency room or a doctor's office would be hard. She didn't have bus tokens. She didn't have a car. You know, she couldn't call a taxi because she couldn't afford it. She didn't have a phone, so she couldn't call anyway. So unless she could get a ride from a neighbor, and of course, she didn't really know when medical care was helpful or necessary. So she, she wasn't good at identifying what medical care could offer and when it was needed, um, and she couldn't afford it. And the few times that she did get it, nobody seemed to notice that these kids that were with her, her own children as well as her grandchild, we're in a pretty vulnerable, unstable situation, and maybe somebody should get in there and start providing some help to stabilize things
0: and really sadly, I mean, there are a lot of Dorothy's out there. You know, maybe her story is quintessential or it's a symbolic or emblematic. But I guess my question is, you know, what was it about Dorothy that stuck with you and that really compelled you to sit down and kind of tell this story using that story as sort of a backbone?
1: Well, I think the the first part of it was how she, as a child, had needed help from Child Protective and from social services and never got it. And then she, as a young mother with her children, had needed help and never got it. And nobody really cared to invest in her in any helpful, supportive way. And it wasn't until a child died in her care that they were interested. And then they were interested only to get revenge, only to make a, a, a spectacle of her, you know. And she was the last link in the chain of people who interacted with this little boy, Ramey. Uh She was the weakest link but her weakness was really not of her own devising you know and it kind of seems to me that as a society we ought to react much sooner when we see kids and mothers in trouble and we ought to be willing to invest the time and resources in them and if we're not willing to do that it's kind of an odd thing to swoop in only when they've utterly failed and then do it in a punitive way that was part of it the other part was that i was in a terrible ethical dilemma myself, because on the one hand, it was fairly clear that she met the legal definition of sanity, and yet it was absolutely clear that whatever happened in her house that ended in this child dying, it was because she was seriously intellectually and psychiatrically impaired. And she seemed to me not like the kind of person that society should train all of its anger and vengeance on. She seemed like the kind of person for whom the idea of the insanity defense had been intended. And yet she didn't easily or clearly meet the definition of legal insanity. And I realized that legal insanity is a very poor fit for what we now understand about mental illness and human brain and behavior. And it hasn't been updated for almost 400 years, and it really is time to do it.
0: All right, everyone, I want to take a quick break from the show to thank the sponsors of this week's episode, starting with KiwiCo. Now, KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about STEAM fun. And remember, STEAM is science, technology, engineering, arts, And math. Each crate is designed by experts and it's tested by kids. And each crate also comes with all of the supplies that you need for that month's project. So no extra trips to the store. There are also friendly instructions for kids of whichever age bracket uh, the crate is catered to. And a magazine filled with content to learn more. Now the coolest thing about KiwiCo and what I love about it is that it really is for kids of all ages. There are a bunch of lines all the way from the panda crate, which is 0 to 24 months up to the Maker Crate and the Eureka Crate. Those are for ages 14 plus. And I don't have kids. And right now, because of lockdown, I'm not able to be doing group therapy with my adolescent clients in person. So because of that, I'm doing my Kiwi Crates on my own. And I have to tell you, before I've only done Eureka Crates, and those are a little bit more catered towards like engineering and science, but I'm super excited to try out some Maker Crates, which are more catered towards art and design, I've been crafting like crazy at home and Kiwi Co is a great way to just like continue with that tradition. So again, it's for kids, but honestly, it's for kids of all ages providing hours and hours of entertainment and also learning as well. So guys... All you've got to do right now to get your whole first month for free, ooh, this is such an exciting offer, you've just got to go to com slash nerdy, and you'll get a free trial. That's com slash nerdy, and you'll have a ton of fun, I promise. And to continue in the tradition of learning while most of us are at home, I am thrilled to thank Masterclass for sponsoring the show this week. Now, Masterclass lets you learn from the best. It gives you exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. And there are so many options to choose from. A massive variety of topics with a really immersive learning experience. I'm talking cinema quality classes that have multiple lessons. You can watch from any device that you'd like, your phone, your tablet, your computer, your Apple TV. Um, The lessons are relatively short, 10 to 15 minutes in length. So they really fit the time that you have available. And in addition, you get downloadable lesson recaps and supplemental material. So this week, I wanted to tell you about a class that's being offered by uh, kind of an old friend, or at least an old acquaintance of mine, somebody who I've interviewed multiple times on multiple television shows, named Ron Finley. Um, he's often called the gangster gardener, and he has an incredible class right now all about gardening. I know that this is something that's really relevant to most of the people listening. We're talking um, cre- getting dirty in the garden, creating planters. Um, you know, increasing your grow, figuring out how to keep your plants alive. And um, even things like soil and compost. So guys, and I'm talking like, it's not just Ron. There are so many great classes. We've got classes from Neil deGrasse Tyson. There are classes from RuPaul. There are classes from Jane Goodall. So many options. So I don't know what you're waiting for. I think it's time that you check it out. You get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a Talk Nerdy listener, you also get 15% off the annual all access pass. So all you've got to do is go to masterclass.com nerdy. That's masterclass.com slash nerdy for 15% off masterclass. All right, everyone, let's get back to the show. Wow, 400. Okay, so that obviously predates the US. So, so in telling the story, it compelled you then to dig into the literature and to try and understand exactly where this insanity plea comes from and, you know, how it all works. So so I'd love to get into that, into the history of the insanity plea and, you know, how what was decided then translates to what we have on the books now.
1: Well, yeah, it goes back to the ancient Hebrews and the, and the classical Romans and Greeks that they all had the idea that when a person was not in their right mind, when they were deranged out of contact with reality, they shouldn't be held guilty in the same way as a person who doesn't act rationally and intentionally so uh, they should be, um, in a sense, forgiven or mercy should be extended to them. But there, it's not the same when somebody who's psychotic kills someone because of a delusion or when you or I go out and kill someone because it, 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 we have some particular benefit that we think we're going to get from it. And we know it's wrong, but we you know, we think secretly we can get away with it and we'll benefit. So we do it. Um, So way, way back in the earliest written law uh, that we have, there's evidence that there was an exception for people who were what we think of colloquially as deranged or not in their right mind or crazy, insane, whatever sort of non-technical word you want to use. Over the years, um, in England, France, various places, but of course our law in the United States is based mainly on English law the courts started trying to formalize and standardize their idea of wh- what does crazy look like? You know, what, when is a person so insane that they shouldn't be punished, they shouldn't be thought of as guilty? And uh, the definition slid around for a while, but for a long time, it continued to have an aspect of not just does the person know that what they're doing is legally wrong, but also do they know that it's morally wrong? And if they don't understand that it's morally wrong, then they haven't committed a sin, so to speak. So in other words, ideas of good and evil, free will and and uh, the laws of God versus uh, evil behavior figured very prominently philosophically into the development of the insanity defense and courts. you know, would really try to look at whether a person was rational or not and whether they had control of their behavior. The problem really got worse when Queen Victoria was on the throne in England and people kept trying to assassinate her. And she got very touchy about the subject and uh, wanted to see all of them punished, regardless of what their mental state had been, uh, because she thought all of them could change their behavior and and would be deterred from this behavior if there was a stiff enough penalty that was certain enough. So she thought they should all be held uh, sane and punished. And when a guy named Daniel Minnaughton, who was a Scottish woodcutter and delusional by all history that we understand, tried to kill the prime minister, uh, but actually ended up killing his secretary, but he was trying to kill the prime minister. Uh, He was acquitted, uh, found not guilty by reason of insanity. And Victoria had the House of Lords convene a special panel of very conservative justices to narrow the definition so that almost no one would would qualify as not guilty by reason of insanity. She really wanted to restrict it. And that was the point at which this idea of you're sane if you know what you're doing and know that it's wrong. That's where that definition comes from, way back in the time of Queen Victoria. And unfortunately, that got adopted pretty much lock, stock, and barrel in the United States and has been applied more and more restrictively, partly for political reasons. So when Charles Guido, uh assassinated um, Garfield, President Garfield, When John Hinckley tried to assassinate President Reagan, you know, we have responded by narrowing and further narrowing the definition of insanity because we just want to punish those particular individuals. We want to deter people from trying to kill presidents. And bad cases make bad law, so when you have a behavior that makes people really up in arms and angry you know, they start modifying the law for that specific case, even though that's not the typical case. And then when you get to the average typical case, it turns out to be bad law, way too restrictive and has lost its original meaning and intent. So politics definitely play a big part in this and the politics of race and the politics of social class. So a lot of these people who were found not guilty by reason of insanity and had killed people in the House of Lords or presidents or kings. You know, there was this huge difference in social class. And uh, so part of it had to do with kind of keeping the rabble away from the gates and by restricting the the defense of insanity.
0: Do you see a similar parallel now in the use of the insanity defense in the united states that there are divisions based on things like race and social class like by and large are the people who are found not guilty by reason of insanity
1: white well actually no uh, it, it's it's <laughs> yeah but that's partly just an artifact uh, a social science artifact so most there's a disproportionate number of uh people in this country who are black are arrested and charged with crimes. Yeah. Uh, Just in general. Yes. and, And a disproportionate number are diagnosed with serious mental illness. And, you know, that's more a factor of sociology and bias and resources than it is probably of the pure reality of mental illness and mental health and crime. So,
0: yeah, it's probably not a genetic basis right, exactly. as much as a a well, societal
1: kind of right, division. E- right, exactly. And, and societal meaning also in terms of the bias. So if a white person does a crime and a black person uh, who's lower class, lower middle class economically does a crime, The chances are higher that the police are going to actually charge the black person while giving the white person a warning or, you know, uh, an adjournment and contemplation of dismissal just because of whatever their bias is. Um, So but the main problem that I see is that when a black defendant is on trial for a serious crime like homicide or murder, the problem is the mostly white jury and their perception of that black defendant. Are they more likely to perceive that defendant as mentally ill and uh, a victim of their own trauma, or are they more likely to see him as dangerous and bad? Because that's going to have a big impact on whether they find somebody insane or not.
0: And the sad thing is it- it- that almost persists independent of any argument that a defense attorney could make. I mean, these biases are so strong and they're not even, the sad thing that we now know is even if it weren't an all white jury, you would still see implicit biases the same way that we, you and I have implicit biases against women, but we are women um, because they're so strong socially. You know, I've long struggled with this idea, and you alluded to it earlier, and it seems to be kind of an underlying theme here of like, when does the victim become the assailant? Um, And, you know, this is something I saw a lot with the girls that were in our care, which was, you know, these were adolescent girls, so they were between 13 and 17. So we're there while a lot of the older girls are transitioning into adulthood. And, you know, you see these kids that are dealing with, um, you know, severe mental illness, and that have you know, are like multi-generational in terms of poverty, in terms of, you know, uh, difficulty with drugs, uh, abuse, all these they, things. They've and often it's been like, aggressed the,
1: against. Right.
0: Of course. <laughs> and so, like the minute they turn 18, like especially, let's say, with CSEC victims. So, um, like I mentioned before, um, sex trafficking victims. Um you see a girl who's 17 who struggled with c throughout. And so she is a clear victim and everybody agrees with that. And they see this as something that she needs to be protected from. The minute she turns 18, now she's a perpetrator. Like, where is that arbitrary line? And how do we get around that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah. Good question. And we tend to look at something. We look at the act rather than the actor. Right. So, so. If the act is is a bad one, a scary one with a bad outcome, you know, it's important for us to look at the actor and say, but what was their understanding? What was their intent? What kind of a person are they? You know, uh, did they just go and do this willfully and wantonly because they're an opportunistic predator or a psychopath, or did they do this because they had a long history of trauma and victimization? And they're intellectually limited. And this was the the natural reaction that they had. And that with a little support, they would behave differently and not constitute a threat. Well, we tend to not do that analysis. But that's what the insanity defense should be about. That's what the analysis should be. You know, not all murders are are, uh, created equal, for sure.
0: Absolutely. I mean... Gosh, it it just brings so many questions to mind. Obviously, when you are a sort of cog in this big machine, working as a clinical psychologist who does forensic work, meaning that you are sometimes, you know, hired to do these kinds of assessments of people who are facing um, a a legal case, um, you know, it must feel a bit... I don't, I don't even know what the right word is. It's not suffocating. It's like you're trying to work with your hands tied behind your back because you, you know what you would want to be able to do, but you just have to do what you are asked to do within this system that is broken in so many ways.
1: Right. You're not asked whether a person's insane or guilty. You're asked whether they knew what they were doing and knew that it was wrong. It's for the right. jury to determine if they're insane. And you you know, you know end up feeling like a collaborator in their victimization sometimes.
0: So whereas you're trying to set out to do the, the thing from a social justice perspective that is like, you know, a good thing, a liberating thing or a thing that, you know, you feel like very strongly um, oriented towards, you end up feeling like guilt and shame. I mean, how did you... How long did you work in that in that position and how did you kind of cope with that?
1: I practiced as a clinical and forensic psychiatrist for over a th- uh, psychologist for over 30 years. Um, and and there were times when you felt like you were doing uh, something that approached justice and reasonableness, you know, and there were times when as a a witness, an expert witness, you were so constrained by the rules of evidence and the way courts are run that your testimony could easily be distorted and misused to achieve something quite different than justice.
0: But you were also a professor during some of this time, right? And so is there... a? some liberty or some solace and being able to, you know, teach a new generation and being able to talk about some of these issues. I don't know if you taught forensics though, or if you taught, um, you, you were a professor of psychiatry,
1: right? Right. right. And, um, right. So I was teaching young psychiatric residents and psychology interns, you know, graduate students and interns, uh, about things in general. And I, I saw a lot of patients, uh, During those same years, so I did some court evaluations, a lot of patient care, and some teaching. But you know, at least you teach them not to be irresponsible as potential forensic experts. You teach them what constitutes an adequate evaluation, and um, you know how to be careful about the limits of our knowledge and the limits of our data, and not uh, appear to have answers to things that we don't have answers to.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I'm wondering just, and obviously, this is your perspective from where you sat in these evaluations. But by and large, you know, having been, having, having had been—that's not right. But having uh, worked as a, a um, as the defense attorney, but also as a prosecutor, and then you know, working also as a, a forensic psychologist. Did you find that, by and large, defense attorneys, even prosecutors, were um, somewhat sensitive to the plight of these individuals? Did you find that there was sort of a lack of empathy there, or was it really just case to case?
1: Well, I think it was attorney to attorney more than case to case. So, for example, in the case of Dorothy, the prosecutor was trying to make a name. Um, with the public as a defender of, of children because he wanted to run for judge. So he wanted a public profile. He had an idea of what he thought his base would favor, and that would be to be very strong on uh, law and order, crime and punishment. So I, don't, I couldn't really tell whether he, on a personal level he cared particularly about either the victims or the the alleged perpetrators what he cared about was getting good news coverage um, and so you know there was no reason in my view to prosecute this woman they should have offered her a plea to a lesser offense because she didn't constitute a danger to anybody and there were significant questions about whether she caused the fatal injury, and if so, what her mental state was at the time. But that wouldn't have done him any good in terms of his uh, desire to run for judge, which is, a, uh, you know, the voters elect judges were, where this case was. And uh, sure enough, he did become a judge.
0: Yeah. Talk about a conflict of interest. I mean, that's long been a difficulty with um, with our legal system is, is prosecutors who are running for public office. Right. And they want some personal advantage. Exactly. I mean, it really makes you wonder, and I know that this is more of a rhetorical question, but probably after these many years and, you know, not just many years of working in the field, but also contemplating these things as you're writing, like, How do we shift or are we ever going to be able to shift from a more preventive perspective to, I mean, this really comes back to what you were saying in the very first sentences of our conversation from a preventive perspective uh, or towards a preventive perspective and away from this like very punitive perspective, which is instead of trying to, you know, get to people early in the cycle of abuse and trauma, we're waiting until it's so bad that lives are lost as a result of something that you know in many ways could be prevented if we had the right, I guess, budgets. If we put really prioritized, you know, taking care of the weakest among us, societally.
1: Well, this case certainly could have been prevented because instead of dropping Ramy off at his grandmother's house, when she said to the protective worker, "I can't take him. I'm too." Low myself, you know, I'm I'm depressed. I'm uh, burnt out. I I can't do it. I can't provide the right place for him. If that protective worker had turned around and taken Rami to a foster home, this death would never have occurred. But that would have taken a little more time, and he didn't have time. He had too many cases and not enough training, and you know, so on. I think it's the burden is on us as voters to approve reasonable budgets. Social service programs. As long as we don't want protective workers, but we do want jails, you know, we fund the jails, but we don't fund the protective services. And as long as that happens, we're going to have kids continually dying.
0: Right. As long as we want punishment and not
1: treatment. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, right. that's. And it's much it's easier
1: gonna... for the voter to. Yeah, and it's really easy to make a pitch to a voter to say, Well, you want to do you want to fund a prison so we can lock up all these dangerous criminals? Uh, People will generally vote for that, but they have a lot of trouble voting for protective service workers, for example.
0: Right. I mean, I'd love to hear your perspective. This this brings to mind um, a study that I covered I guess it wasn't too too recently now maybe 5 or 6 years ago um where some researchers talked about a construct that they called belief in pure evil BPE oh. and they defined belief in pure evil according to um you know some psychometric tool that they developed so an inventory or something and they would ask people about their Um, their beliefs. And so people would score high on a belief in pure evil or low. Like I personally, because I'm secular, I don't believe in God, blah, blah, blah. I'd probably score low on belief in pure evil. I don't think evil exists. Um, But some people really think that people are like possessed by the devil when they do bad things. And so they would score high on belief in pure evil. And then they looked at all these other measures and they found a high level of correlation between belief in pure evil and more punitive responses versus more preventive responses. So Uh people who believed in pure evil were more likely to be pro-death penalty. They were more likely to be against um, uh, criminal, you know, legal insanity pleas. They wanted to see people go to prison, not to drug or alcohol treatment. And it was really worrisome to me, this kind of mental state that I think a lot of Americans have, which is, well, some people just can't be helped. They're bad people. We need to punish them. And I'm interested in kind of your take on that sort of summary perspective.
1: I'm not familiar with that particular study, but it sounds fascinating and Mm. also terrifying. Right. And uh, yeah, some people have a very authoritarian view. They believe in free will They think if you do a bad thing, it means you're a bad person. They don't really look to other possible causes. They, in in a sense, they have trouble walking in somebody else's shoes and thinking, if I had had the same life as this person, would I be behaving differently than they do? Would I be behaving the way I think I do? Or would it be different? You know, you have to be able to walk in somebody else's shoes to have empathy and to begin to understand. I, I think, um, I I believe in evil. I believe there are some people who are pure evil, but I think it's a really, really, really small number. Most of us, uh, we do bad things, but it's, uh, it's not necessarily that we're bad people, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I always wonder if, you know, training in, in, mental health. So individuals, whether you're studying psychology or, or for a, a master's level counseling position or more of a research position um, within psychiatry, psychology, all the different mental sociology, um, social work, as I started to study that more, because my background was neuroscience first. So it was a little bit more wet lab clinical. I was working with mice. And then I moved over after my master's to to go into psychology after a long break. I started to realize how salient and how important these very like Rogerian that's referencing Carl Rogers features are that regardless of your orientation, because I'm existentially oriented, some people are psychodynamic, some are cognitive behavioral, wherever they come from, this idea of like unconditional positive regard, non-judgmental stance, empathic stance with your client. Like it doesn't matter what they did or who they are. It is your job as their clinician to really be there for them and be open towards them and not to sit there and judge them because how are you ever going to help them that way? It's something that I I just wish everybody in the world was exposed to at least a little bit because it's so it's hard sometimes if you know I've I've known people who work with sexual offenders, you know, they're they're working with pedophiles in prison and they're like it challenges me to sit there and be open, you know, and to to look at them like um with just complete empathy, but being challenged in that way is I think so fundamentally important for being able to exist in the world and not be so punitive and d- draconian and just like I don't know, just aggressive, like that empathy you talked about, in my view, underlies everything. And we're just not good at it as a society.
1: Are you telling me that I should not have threatened to dangle a patient's uh, father out my office window by his ankles?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the other thing, too, right? When you're the one treating the victims.
1: Oh, man. (sighs) Yeah. I've been there
0: too. (laughs) I've been there too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, once in a while they they do manage to trigger an unempathic response. But I think understanding the reasons for a behavior is terribly important. If we want to predict whether it's going to happen again or if we want to inform ourselves of how to prevent it in the future, we have to understand what the behavior arose from. And if we Mm. assume that it rose from evil, That's a static, unchangeable thing, that nothing, Mm -hmm. that this is just a bad person, that's very different than if we assume it arose from limited intellect, poor problem solving skills, poor access to resources, you know, fatigue, psychiatric deficit. The solutions are very different. And if it's solutions that we want rather than an opportunity to exercise vengeance, then we have to understand the reasons for a behavior.
0: I so agree, and I think that that um, that is really uh, kind of capitulated beautifully. And have you seen the series on Netflix? It was a couple years ago now, called Mind Hunter. No. It's a beautiful show. I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested. It's a drama series, but it's based on the FBI's behavioral unit and when it was first developed in response to try and understand so that they could get in front of the actions of serial killers. And what it really shows well early on is the resistance within the Bureau to even looking at, you know, childhood or behavioral causes that there was this you know, mentality of just like, these are bad people. Why are we trying to understand them? We should Mm -hmm. just be punishing them. Just just catch them and punish them. Right. Right. And so these other people were like, well, I'm not excusing their behavior by trying to understand it. I think this is the best way to capture them and punish them. And it was sort of this like, oh, this light bulb moment for people that, you know, for some reason, I think a lot of people feel as if there may be committing a moral failure if they do want to empathize or if they do want to understand more about the uh, precipitating causes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that that's weakens t- the whole premise of good and evil. And that says right. somehow a violation. Yeah.
0: Yes. And that's something that I think that nuanced area, that gray area that's uncomfortable is an area where it's, you know, it's good to spend time in and, and maybe put yourself in that uncomfortable place, because I think that's where you start to
1: really become enlightened in a way. And then we we polarize within mm. our communities and say, well, the right kind of people, good moral people believe in evil and punish it when they see it. And it's only bad people, wishy-washy, liberal, uh, (laughs) empathic, (laughs) who don't care when they see evil and, and make excuses for it. And that's a very crazy division. You know, it doesn't. Absolutely. It's, it's apparent, but not real. So.
0: And yeah, and it, it can be so frustrating for people who actually really, really care about social justice because it's, it, it makes you feel like the world is like up upside down. Um, and I can imagine that you must have felt that way many, many times throughout your journey as a as a forensic psychologist, that the world was yeah, sort many. of
1: backward in terms of justice. Right, that a lot of times the people who who uh, staked their claim to justice were, in a sense, uh, perpetrators. Right. <laughs> perpetrators of yet another injustice against uh, people who had already had about every disadvantage that we can offer as a society. And certainly Dorothy Dunn is in that category.
0: Absolutely. Well, Susan, I mean, I think the book that you have written – And the experience that you had that went into the book that you wrote is so incredibly important. It's also so well written. Everybody, the book is nobody's child, a tragedy, a trial, and a history of the insanity defense. Before we move on to my closing two questions, which I ask every guest on the show, I was wondering if there's just anything else that we didn't really cover or that you felt like was an important takeaway, um, you know, before we go to those last two questions.
1: No, I just think that it's great that there are programs like yours that create a forum for people to think about and to discuss these issues at an unsuperficial level. I'm just so, so glad that you exist and that your audience exists. Oh, well, I'm so
0: glad that you exist to do the, the type of amazing work that you do so that I can sit here and pontificate about it. Um, I think that it's it's just such an important book. And I'm really hoping, I think that a lot of people listening right now would be really touched by this and would, would gain a lot from it. So thank you for that. Um, you know, so I ask all of my um, guests on the show, two big picture questions as we close. And I'm fascinated to hear your perspective on them. So are you ready? Because they're pretty, um, they're deep. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, here we go. I know, I've i had people tell me before, they're like, why do you warn your guests before you ask? I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> um, so here they go. So when you're thinking about the future in whatever context is relevant to you, so it could be, you know, the criminal justice system, it could be the future of mental health, it could be your own personal future or big global issues, whatever is relevant. Um, number one, What is the thing that's really keeping you up the most at night? The thing that you're concerned about, you are maybe even borderline like cynical or pessimistic about, like, you know, a thing that you're like, things aren't looking good. And then on the flip side of that, what are you genuinely and like authentically hopeful for, optimistic about, really looking forward to? Oh.
1: What great questions. <laughs> well, I think for the first one, you know, I've been around a really long time. I'm like super old. So, I'm one of the <laughs> I'm one of the generation of people who bridge between when the environment, when the planet was still relatively virgin and healthy and now as we're on the edge of destroying our habitat. Um you know, I remember when populations were lower, and although we had problems with pollution, especially air and water pollution, uh, they hadn't been going on for 100 years. They were relatively recent still, and human impact on, on the planet was still um, somewhat, it didn't have the power that it has now to literally actually destroy the habitat that we are reliant on. And I. it makes me really sad and angry and worried, you know, um, mm-hmm. if we don't start treating the earth in, a, in an entirely different way, philosophically, rather than as a resource to plunder, we aren't going to last very long as a species. And that's a sad thing because the answer to the second question is what I'm hopeful about is the better parts of human nature, not not the parts that we share with chimpanzees genetically, not our aggression, not our selfishness, but our capacity for empathy and for selflessness and for love and for caring. And I think, especially now, you know, with the COVID virus going around, you see so many people making personal sacrifices for the good of their community or other individuals in the community, doing really thoughtful, helpful, caring things. And I think that's a great capacity that we have as humans, if we can control some of the other stuff. So that's where I am.
0: Well, here, here, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that's um, a beautiful summary and gosh, Susan, I've had such a, great time talking to you today. I've learned so much. And in a way, I think this conversation has really challenged um, for me and hopefully for the people listening, some of our maybe more tidy or more comfortable conceptions of the world and really put us in a position where we're facing some real difficulties. and, And maybe it'll empower a few people who are listening to start changing the way they think about things or, or becoming a little bit more active in in certain areas of their lives. So I, I just I really thank you for that. It's been a joy.
1: Oh, thanks. I've loved the conversation.
0: Me too. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.